Well, I know we've dismissed the children already, but I want to see if all of us can actually take a trip down memory lane and go back to our own childhoods. For those of us who were raised in church, there are some songs that I imagine we'd all remember being taught in our Sunday school classes. So I'm going to start a song for us. I'm sure y'all have played this game before at some point, right? I'll start a song, and if you know the lyrics to it, I'll point to y'all and y'all finish the song for me, all right? All right. Song number one. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 Here's a catch. He's got the wind and in his hands, he's got the wind and the rain. In his hands, he's got the wind and the rain. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. Amen. That was good. Amen. Amen. All right. We got one more. We got one more. One more. Second song. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's Amen. All right. We're going to finish it. We got that, that, that verse one more time. Then there's something else I want us to get to. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing mighty. Y'all don't know this one as well. All right, I'll teach it to you. I'm going to teach it to you. Here's a song. Listen to me, and then we'll, 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 we'll do it together. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And again, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And here's the part I really want us to sing together. He made the trees, he made the seas, he made the elephants too. All right? So we're going to try this. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Again, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. He made the trees, he made the seas, he made... All right, I think y'all get the point. Um, We got a little bit off rhythm there. <laughs> uh, some of y'all paid attention to Sunday school. Others of y'all, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try it again later on. Um, but the reason I had us to quote and sing those songs this morning is because from a, a very early age, a very early point in our lives, those songs were aimed at teaching us about how our God is omnipotent. Those songs teach us about how our God is all-powerful and in control of all things. They teach us about his rule and his reign in both our lives and in the world. Uh, J.I. Packer uh, defined God's omnipotence in this way. He says, God's power to do everything that is in his rational and moral perfection that he wills to do is his omnipotence. Or in other words, God is powerful enough to do anything he desires according to his own wisdom and his own standards of what's good. He can powerfully work in whatever ways he wants because he is omnipotent. It's a good word for us to to, to remember and just think about from time to time, omnipotent. And this concept of God's omnipotence is one that the Bible very regularly reminds us of. Psalm 62, 11 says, God has spoken once. I have heard this twice, the psalmist says. Strength belongs to God. Psalm 65, verse 6, you establish the mountains by your power. You are robed with strength. In Job 26, 14, the question is asked, who can understand his mighty thunder? Nahum, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. And then our passage this morning, 
in a narrative form. It, it, it holds out an example of God's great power for us to see and to marvel at. It shows us that our God is indeed omnipotent. And so in our time together this morning, I want us to consider the Lord's great power, to consider his, his omnipotence, to, to think about what it means for us, and then to, to think about how we should act in light of it. These two narratives in today's passage are both displays of God's great power. They show us two different manifestations, one of them being the power he has over creation and nature, and the other being the power he has over demons and demonic agendas. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at both of these narratives. We're going to marvel at these great displays of God's great power. We'll look at them one at a time, and then we'll kind of go back and, and, and work back and forth between the two to consider what these narratives, when put together, teach us about how we should react to God's power. So first, let's look at this display of God's power, starting in verse 22. I want us to consider how God has the power to command creation. God has the power to command creation. Uh, So Luke writes for us that uh, Jesus jumps into a boat with his disciples, and he tells them that he wants to go to the other side of the lake. And so they begin sailing in that direction. And as they're out on the water, we're told in verse 23 that a fierce windstorm broke out. Uh, this would have been the Sea of Galilee that, that they were sailing on. And the Sea of Galilee is, is actually known for its unique uh, tendency to, to have these terrifying storms that can literally come out of nowhere. If you go and look up a, a picture of the Sea of Galilee, you'll note that it has um, a bit of a bowl shape to it. So, so the sea itself kind of sits down in this pocket, and it's surrounded by these inclines and these hills that kind of create a bit of a rim that surrounds the body of water. And so naturally, you get wind that kind of blows into the region, and the rims of these hills that surrounds this water create these swirling winds that make wind funnels that can really be pretty strong. And when you've got that mixed with this vast body of water that the wind funnels will be swirling over, it often results in these violent storms. Now think about it. You've got these strong, speedy, whirling winds, and they're going back and forth over this deep body of water. Now, that could cause some very large, intimidating waves to form and to crash, and it is not a situation that you would have wanted to catch yourself in the middle of. But that's exactly where Jesus and his disciples find themselves. And I just kind of a side note, I think it's hilarious that uh, Jesus is sleeping during all of this. Like, as all of this is going on, I'm so glad Luke writes to us and tells us that, because this not only informs us about our Savior, but I think it's just funny. Like, he got this great storm that's happening, and Jesus is deliberately, it's like he, his mind is set. He's going to finish his nap. So that's what he's doing. Like, I, I, can, I can resonate with our Savior in this moment, and I'm glad we get to read about this. The Lord wanted to finish his nap. Uh, but as Jesus sleeps, uh, this storm is apparently doing what these storms were known for doing in the worst fashion possible. Look at the descriptors that Luke uses to tell us about the storm. He calls it a fierce windstorm. He says they're being swamped by the waves. He describes these waves in verse 24 as as raging waves. And he tells us outright at the end of verse 23 that these Jesus and his disciples, they they're in danger. And so see the picture that Luke's painting for his friends. This violent storm. The disciples are out in this wooden boat that would have been built with first century technology and the waves are swamping them, he says. That English word swamping is an accurate depiction of what was happening because it's believed that these waves would actually get to be so high that they would cover the tops of of an average-sized boat, and so when they came down to crash, it could crash inside a boat and literally swamp the boat and fill the boats with water. It would have been a terrifying experience. And as it's happening, you've got Jesus asleep, but his disciples, meanwhile, are losing 
their minds. They're doing all they can do. They, 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 they're thinking and, and trying to figure out what are we going to do to get through this storm. And then they eventually just kind of throw in the towel and they go wake Jesus up. It's like, yo, Jesus, like, I, look here, brother. Like, we are about to die. And you're sleeping. Like, can you imagine the frustration and confusion they must have felt in looking at Jesus in this moment? Like, like, you're the reason we're in the boat. You said, let's go to the other side of the lake. And we're, here we are in this storm about to die. And you just, you, you, your mind is set and made up on finishing your nap. I imagine the frustration that the disciples must feel. But here's the thing we want to note about this. I don't think they're wrong for waking Jesus up. I mean, we beat up a lot on the disciples for the different flaws that are highlighted of theirs when we read Scripture. But they've got all the reason in the world to be concerned here, right? Like, I would have been concerned, too. They're looking at this situation, they're assessing it, and they know that it is not good. And to them, it probably does seem as though they are about to die. But here's what I want us to learn from how they react. While they had reason for concern, they did not have reason for panic. There's a difference. They had reason for concern, but they did not have reason for panic. You see, oftentimes we, we, we go through life and because we still live in a world in which we will experience misfortune, there's sometimes legitimate reason for concerns. But as the people of God, there's never legitimate reason for us to panic if it's, as if our God doesn't have all things under control. We can be concerned, but we should remember who our God is in the midst of our concern. Like sometimes we may need to go to God and be like, excuse me, Lord, like I could, I could really use your help in this. God delights to hear us to pray in that way. But when we go to him, beloved, let's remember that we're going to a God who actually does have the power to help. He's got the power to work in the midst of whatever situation we're in. And, I mean, you can tell from the disciples' statement, like, master, master, we're going to die. They made their minds up about how the situation was going to end. But when Jesus said to them, let's get into the boat, he also told them, we're going to cross over to the other side of the lake. And these disciples had been with Jesus. They spent enough time with him and they witnessed him perform enough miracles to know that if the God in human flesh says that he was getting to the other side of the lake, then he, in spite of any windstorm, was getting to the other side of the lake. That's where he set his mind on going. And this windstorm wasn't going to stop him. And so we see that they weren't necessarily wrong in going to get Jesus. They went to the right one. They went to the one who actually could help, but their posture was wrong. So when we posture ourselves in faith, friends, faith can provide us with fortitude to carry on in the face of fear. So I catch that. Our faith in God can produce fortitude to carry us on when we face fears. But these disciples are lacking faith, and therefore they're also lacking fortitude. And so our great Lord our great Savior, he stands up and he demonstrates his great power. He demonstrates his power to command creation. We're told in verse 24 that Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind and raging waves. That word rebuke means to admonish or to reprove. So we're basically told here uh, that Jesus puts the wind and waves in their place. And the text says that they ceased and there was a calm. That means exactly what it says, y'all. To cease is to stop completely. And the Greek word for calm here relates specifically to the calmness of the sea. It, it kind of portrays this, this stillness and this tranquility of seawaters. So think about the contrast. This giant body of water that was just a second earlier 
looking more like a field of living hills with, with waves rising and falling all over the place. And now it's completely still. And I imagine looking like a sheet of glass or a mirror, straight with no band across the top. Chaos has given way to calmness. Turbulence has been made tranquil. And I bet the shouts of the disciples have become silent. And then the silence is broken by this telling question that our Savior asked them after they'd woken him up. Where is your faith? And when Jesus asked this question, he exposes to the disciples and to we who now read about them what was at work in their hearts. And it wasn't the trust in God that they should have had. It wasn't the, the, the fortitude producing faith that should have been there. And I think about it. These disciples had no excuse to be without faith. Like not only have they seen Jesus work miracles in the time they've been with him, but they also would have been Jewish men, which means they would have grown up hearing about how Yahweh, the God in heaven, had been working throughout all of human history. Like they should have known that God wasn't new to the business of commanding creation. They should have known that, that since the beginning of time, God had been commanding creation for his glory and for his people's good. Literally, since the beginning of time. I think about it. In the beginning, there was nothing. God took that nothing and he made it into something. And then he took that something he created and he gave a command and creation was spun to form human DNA as we know it. And so life as we know and experience it literally begins with God commanding creation for his glory and for his people's good. And then a little while after that, God's people were caught up and they were entrapped by the oppressive nation of Egypt. And so God told water to be bloody and the water was made bloody. He told frogs to start hopping and the frogs leaped like they were told. He instructed gnats to swarm and the gnats began swarming. Then he told the flies to, to follow the example of the gnats and the flies surely followed. He ordered the sky to pour out hell and hell fell from the sky. He directed locusts to go and eat through Egypt and the locusts went to get full. He sent for darkness, friends, to cover the land and the darkness was surely summoned. God did all of that for his glory and the good of his oppressed people. And then once they were freed, I remember how the story goes on. Egypt tried to chase them down, but God stepped in and he commanded the waters of the Red Sea to part for his people to cross on dry land. And then he commanded them to fall so that Egypt would plunge to a watery death. He did this also for his glory and the good of his people. And then as they continued on their journey through the wilderness, he sent them a cloud as company for the day and a pillar of fire as company throughout the night. He commanded creation in this way to offer guidance for his glory and the good of his people. When Elijah needed rain, you remember that story? He went to the Lord and the Lord poured out rain. When Daniel was banished to the lion's den, God sent angels and he decided that that lion was going to take a diet. When, when, when God knew that Jonah needed to be in Nineveh, he sent the fish. And y'all remember how this story ends, right? Like God decided the fish didn't need to take a diet. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> um, but God did all of this, all of this commanding creation for his glory and for the good of his people. And then here in our passage that we're reading this morning, we've got God in human flesh. Jesus Christ himself, he's in this boat with his disciples. The storm starts to rage and God does what only God can do. He commands creation for his glory and the good of his people. And now this phrase I'm using here, his glory, the good of his people. I'm using that phrase on purpose. The reason I'm saying this is because I think it'd be easy for us to look at this passage and to think about it in ways that we probably have heard it interpreted before. 
It'd be easy to look at this and to, to kind of allegorize this storm. That, that, that means to take the storm and, and to make it nothing more than an allegorical symbol that represents the hard days we see in life. And I want you to hear me say this. The fact that God in human flesh, the fact that Jesus in this passage commands this storm and makes it cease, it does mean that he's got the power to do the same thing in the storms of your life. But that is not the main application we want to take away from this passage. That's not why Luke writes this passage, I don't believe. See, this passage is here because Luke wants us to look at our Savior and to marvel at his power. He wants us to look at Jesus and to be in awe of his miracle-working power. Luke wants us to read this, and, and, and before thinking about our own selfish good, he wants us to consider the glory of our God. He wants us to read this and consider what we know to be the answer to this question that the disciples ask in verse 25. Like, who is this who commands even the winds and waves, and they obey him? Like, any fool can, can, can go out and command wind and waves, right? But when the wind and waves obey you, that says something about you. And Luke wants us to read this. And to know that Jesus commanding these winds and these waves and then them listening to him says about him that he has the power to command creation. Because who is it who has even the power to command creation? It is God who has the power to command creation. And this passage, friends, is showing us that Jesus is God in human flesh, demonstrating that very power. And here's the thing. Us thinking about that does more for us than it would to make this sermon all about the storm being the hard times we see in life. You know why? Because when we consider God's power in this way, when we consider his great power that's on display, that gets us to the gospel. <laughs> Say amen if you came to rejoice in the gospel this morning, church. We're going to talk about the gospel of Christ. You know what the gospel tells us? The gospel tells us that this same power Jesus used to command this storm and to make it cease is the very power that the Holy Spirit used to make Mary pregnant, even though she was a virgin. And so there you've got the miraculous birth of our divine Savior. And then Jesus uses that same power to live a perfect life with no sin. The power helped him to resist Satan and to resist temptation. And then that power carried him through torment as he endured the brutal punishment for the sins of everyone else who did deserve the punishment that he was getting. And then once he died to pay the full price for the sins of the world, God the Father used that same power to raise Jesus from the dead and to give us this, this miraculous resurrection of a sinless Savior who died a sinner's death, making possible the sinner's salvation. And so the power we see in this passage, friends, it might silence the storms in our life, and that'd be for our good, but it is for our greater good that this power can silence the storm of sin in our lives and give us eternal calmness. That's what this passage is showing us, friends. It's our God who has the power to silence storms, to command creation, and also the power to save sinners. And that's the great hope we have. That is the great hope that we come rejoicing in this morning. That's the great hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has the power to command creation, the power to save sinners. And in looking at these next verses, we also see that he has the power to evict evil. Jesus, our God, has the power to evict evil evil. So look with me at verses, verse 26 here. The passage tells us that they eventually reached the destination of the Gerasenes region. Uh, there's, there's a lot of scholarly debate about uh, which region this might have been. There were uh, three or four different places with similar names. And so with the manuscript evidence we have, we don't know exactly which region this would have been. But we are told that whatever region it was, it was opposite Galilee, just like Jesus said he wanted to go. And verse 27 tells us that when he gets out of the boat onto land, a demon-possessed man from whatever town this was, 
comes to meet him. And it says the man had been this way for a while. It says he wore no clothes and he didn't stay in a house, but he instead stayed in tombs. Verse 28 says that when the man saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before Jesus and said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. And now in visualizing this part of the narrative, I want us to make a quick observation about the difference we see in what's happening here and what was typically the case when Jesus traveled from place to place. In the passage we studied last week, we saw that Jesus was traveling with his apostles and, and, and some of the women that he delivered from uh, sickness and evil. And as they traveled, they were eventually met by a large crowd. Y'all remember that? We saw that last week. They were met by a large crowd in last week's passage. That's the reason Jesus began teaching about the, the different kinds of soil that people might be when they receive God's word, because he, he and his teaching had grown to be very popular by this time. And so crowds followed him wherever he went as people sought to hear him teach. We saw that example last week. And then if you glance over at verse 40 real quick, you see that the very first verse for next week's passage says, Jesus, Jesus returns to the Galilean area and there's a crowd that meets him there. It literally says the crowd welcomes him for they were all expecting him. And this has been the case with Jesus for a while, right? We've seen this throughout Luke's gospel. He goes from place to place. He preaches, he teaches, he performs a miracle and crowds begin to follow him. But he gets to this place and there is no crowd. And I believe it benefited us to think about why. When Jesus decided to go to this place, he called it the other side of the lake. Luke tells us that this place is opposite Galilee. And now that they've arrived, we're about to see that nobody greets Jesus except this demon-possessed man, and nobody's mentioned who encounters Jesus upon his arrival except a herd of pigs and the herdsmen who were looking after the pigs. And I think this is all a purposeful part of the story, friends. I think Jesus has purposely come to this place where he knew that this would be the greeting he'd receive to model for his disciples and all who would later read about this experience that sometimes it's good to go to the opposite other side for the sake of the gospel. That's what Jesus is showing here, I believe. Uh, the fact that these people have a herd of pigs they're treating as livestock tells us that this is likely not a Jewish town. The Jews considered pigs to be filthy, and so they would have never had anything to do with pigs, which means that these, these are not people who would have had all the exposure that the Jews would have had to the teaching about God, nor the, this new teaching that Jesus himself had been preaching on the other side of the lake. There's no crowd to come and greet him because they have no idea that he's the God of the universe who's worthy of a great greeting. But Jesus, he knew that this demon-possessed man was there, and he knew that the people had probably done all they could to deliver him. Then when deliverance didn't work, they'd done all they could to contain him, but that wasn't working either. So I believe Jesus goes to the other side of the lake in order to have these Gentile people be exposed to the truth of who he is and what he'd come to do through the deliverance he's about to give this man. I believe it was all purposeful for the sake of their hearing the good news that he'd been sent to proclaim. And in going to the other side, the, the opposite side of Galilee, Jesus models for us the reminder that as his people, we reflect our God when we too have a concern to get the gospel to the other side or to the places that are opposite of us. Now, this is the reason that pioneer church is in existence, right? <laughs> Why would Park Baptist Church plant another church five minutes from its own location? Well, because Pioneer may only be five minutes away, but demographically, we're kind of on the other side. 
we're in a place that could be considered opposite. And I want to encourage us as a church body. The fact that we've come here, our coming here with the intent to take up this fourth core value of ours, this value of missional living, like coming here with the intent to avail ourselves to God in a missional living kind of way in this community, that's us modeling and reflecting the same thing our Savior does here. He goes to the other side and he wants his people to follow his example. And this is also why we invest in foreign missions and why we support church plants. We know that there are places all across the world and our state and our nation and, and, and everywhere that are other side, opposite kinds of places. And we've got concern to see the gospel be spread in those places too. So let's press on in this, people. Let's continue to seek the Lord for opportunities and wisdom to do ministry in other side kinds of places that will lack gospel exposure if we ourselves weren't willing to go there. Jesus went to the other side where exposure to him and his gospel were limited and he delivers a demon-possessed man so that the word about him will begin to pick up steam. And now it's interesting. No crowd comes to meet Jesus. But we see who does. <laughs> this demon-possessed man comes to meet Jesus because although the people had yet to recognize the divine authority that Jesus had, the demons within this man certainly recognized the divine authority of Jesus. And that's because in the same way that creation must respond when Jesus gives a command, evil and demonic forces must also do the same. And so this demon-possessed man, he shows up because the demons within him know that Jesus has the power to evict them from this man's body. He's got the power to evict evil. God's word tells us this, for, for, for the light shines and darkness has and will not overcome it. That's John 1.5. Christ Jesus will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's Matthew 16.18. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. That's Deuteronomy 20 verse 4. All the way back to Genesis, the offspring of man strikes the head of the serpent. We've seen in God's word, like it lays out for us that God has the power to evict evil. And when Jesus steps out of this boat, that power and authority is immediately put on display for us. When he asks this man his name, the demons respond and they tell him that their name is Legion because there were many demons within this man. <laughs> the word Legion was a word that the Roman army used to refer to an army unit, an army unit of about 6,000 soldiers. And so these demons respond to make the point to Jesus, like, yo, there are a lot of us in this dude. Like, he's not just demon-possessed. He is extremely demon-possessed. And his behaviors had given testament to that, right? Like we see in verses 28 through 29, this man had been this way for a long time, and he never wore clothes, and he lived in the tombs, and he would frequently have seizures. And even though the people had tried to guard him with chains and shackles, he'd snap their restraints and then make his way to the deserted places like the tombs that he lived in. You know, we don't talk about this a lot in American Christianity, but demonic activity is real. And it happens. And it sometimes manifests itself with crazy, wild behavior like we're reading about with this man. And the man's behavior and Luke's record of it is meant to show us that this was no mild thing to look over. But this man is radically possessed by multiple demons. But how do those demons respond when Jesus shows up? <laughs> They respond in a way that displays his authority to evict evil. The text says the demons asked Jesus, what do you have to do with us, son of the most high God? They knew who he was and they knew what he came to do. And then I want us to count the number of times their conversation, uh, in their conversation when Jesus shows his power and authority over them. In verse 28, after they asked what Jesus was going to do with them, it says they beg him not to torment them. 
In verse 29, we're told he commanded them to come out of the man. In verse 31, and they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. Verse 32, the demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and then he gave them permission. Beloved, this passage is riddled with proof after proof after proof that your God indeed has the power to evict evil. And, 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 and this, like just, just like the display of his power to command curation is good news for you because of what it shows in his power, this power that he has on display to, to evict evil, it also shows us that evil has no place among us in our lives. And so whether it be the evil of sinful temptation or spiritual warfare and torment from demons, or the evil of sin within others having negative effects on youth, or the evil of past experiences that still haunt you. This passage is showing us that none of this stuff has any place among God's people, because where God is present, evil cannot be. And though we won't live to see this in fullness on this side of heaven, we know that in heaven, where God's presence is fully unveiled, there will be no evil that abides. And so what do we do with this passage? We want to take it we want to marvel at it and, 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 and rejoice about God's display of power over evil right here. And then we want to dream about the greater display that we'll see once we dawn the heavenly gates. Our God has power to evict evil, and he's created a place where it will be forever evicted from the whole of his people's experiences. Verse 31 says they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. Well, this abyss that they're talking about is the place that they know they're eventually going. It's believed to be a kind of symbolism for, for hell, um, a bottomless gulf, a kind of unfathomable supernatural place where God binds demons. It's the antithesis to heaven, and the demons know they're on their way there. And in Revelation chapter 20, the apostle John writes about what's to come in the future. He says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, the, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it. And so these demons know, friends, that there's a day coming when they will be banished to the abyss, and they know that Jesus has the power to do it. Like We're in a spiritual battle. This life is a spiritual battle that we fight. But it's a spiritual battle where it's known that the victor has already won and his adversaries have already been defeated. God has the power to evict evil and he's in the process of evicting it for good. That's what our Lord has the power to do. That's what we rejoice in. The fact that there's a place which awaits us where evil will have no root. You know, some people might read this and be tempted to doubt God's power. I mean, it does say that, that Jesus, or it kind of you can misunderstand it to say that Jesus is kind of negotiating with the demons, right? Like he goes back and forth with them in conversation. But this isn't Jesus negotiating due to any lack in his power. The conversation goes this way because for some reason that we don't understand, but God alone does, he's chosen to give Satan a short leash to let him run about and do some things for a time. But we all know that we're awaiting a time that we just read about in Revelation chapter 20, when God will take this leash away and put an end to Satan's activity. Matthew even does us a favor when he records uh, this narrative in his gospel. He tells us that the demons beg Jesus not to torment them before the time. And so they know that the time is coming. They're anticipating it themselves, and we also get to anticipate the day when our God will show his ultimate authority over Satan and his demons with an eternal eviction of banishing them to the pit of hell. That's what we've got to look forward to, friends. And just, we don't have time to get into this, but I want to point it out. Did y'all notice that the demons don't want to go to the abyss? <laughs> Hell is not a nice place. I'll just leave it at that. That's for free in case y'all didn't know it. <laughs> but God will 
eventually banish the demons to hell. But until then, we see Jesus permit these demons to enter the pigs, and the pigs go off the side of the bank and drown in the lake. The demons are gone. The man is delivered. And then the people of the town are told about all of this from the herdsmen who were watching the pigs. And so the people come out to investigate. And what they find brings us to the point of considering what Jesus' power means in relation to us. Verse 35 says, they found the man sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed with clothing. I don't know where he got the clothing from, but he got it from somewhere. And here's a big thing to make note of. In his right mind. It's been a long time since they'd seen this man in this way. They tried to contain him themselves. They tried putting restraints on him. They tried guarding him, but none of that stuff worked. And so this passage at this point is showing us that God's power surpasses human strategy. God's power surpasses human strategy. They'd done all they could, and their strategy had failed. But then God in flesh shows up, and his power prevails. And it's not just here. Think back to the last narrative with the disciples in the boat. The disciples had done all they knew to do. And now remember, many of these disciples were fishermen. And so these aren't rookies to to life on the sea. These are men who would have spent many hours of their lives on that same body of water, having survived many windstorms before. But this storm that we just read about must have been so bad that they ran out of options. And so they needed to wake Jesus up. You know, I think that seeing the limitations of human methods in both of these passages when we see how humanity is limited in the plans and the strategies we try to come up with, it does show us that God's power surpasses human strategy. But I think it also shows us how God's power can soothe those who are saved. This is just a minor detail for us to note in passing. But the passage did tell us that Jesus was asleep during that storm. (laughs) This is because he knew the power he possessed. But as God's people who also know the power God possesses, maybe the best thing for us to do when we face turbulence in life when we walk through those storms that we want to talk about, maybe the best thing for us to do is to go to sleep like our Savior. Because we're saved in Christ, friends, a lot of the times when we worry, we could be resting. The saved can be soothed. I mean, think about it. If Jesus, who had the power to calm the storm, slept during it, what business do we, who have no power at all, What business do we have going crazy and and worrying and exhausting all thinkable and unthinkable human plans? It's like Jesus says in Matthew 6, 27, what does worrying add to your life? His answer to that question, it adds nothing. So listen to me, friends. Sometimes you might just need to go to sleep and let God do it only he can. There's the old tale of a little boy named Michael who would go to the corner store with his mom and uh, the store owner would always offer him free candy. So they walk in the store and the owner would always say, like, Michael, it's so good to see you, man. Like, like, once you, once you go over to that jar over there and, 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 and grab you a handful of that candy. But every time the owner would say this, Michael would just look at him. The owner would offer the free candy, but Michael wouldn't take any. He'd just kind of sit there and, and he'd stare at the candy jar. And then eventually the store owner would, would reach in himself and he'd grab the candy and he'd hand it to Michael. And so one day, Michael's mom got on to him. She said, Michael, why do you always act so shy in this store? You know, we go to that store, and and, and Mr. Store Owner gives you that candy. Like, you know you want the candy, but you never take it. Why don't you take the candy if you know you want a handful of candy? Michael looked at his mom. He said, "Uh," said, look, mama, you don't understand. 
His hands are bigger than mine. <laughs> you see, my husband understood, friends, that sometimes in life it's best to let the one with bigger hands handle the situation for us. <laughs> God's power surpasses human strategy and it soothes the saved. It surpasses human strategy and soothes the saved. And so what do we do in light of this power? There are a few things I think we should do and we can draw from looking at the passage and the different responses we see from the people. The first suggestion I want to give for us after witnessing God's power is for us to rejoice and rest. This is basically a recap of a lot of what I've already said, but I don't think it can be emphasized enough. When God's power is seen, his people can be settled. When his power is seen, his people can be settled. We can settle our temptations to panic about the different things we face in life because we know that our God has the power to work in the midst of it all. Going back and, and thinking about the response of the disciples and the people from this town. When the Lord worked on their behalf, they should have been overwhelmed with joy, right? The disciples were near death in the storm. He stopped it. They should have been moved to rejoice in him. The people of the town had to live amongst this out of control demoniac, but Jesus delivered him, which is a byproduct would have also been deliverance of them. And so they also should have been moved to rejoice about that. And if they truly would have learned from these experiences, then the next time they're in a situation like this, they'd be less prone to panic and more likely to rest with trusting God and his power. When we witness God's power, we should be led to rejoice about it and to rest. Yet we see that the people from the town respond in the wrong way. Verse 37 tells us the people of the town asked Jesus to leave because they were afraid. <laughs> and this is also likely because Jesus had kind of, he showed up and he ruined their primary source of income, which was these pigs that he sent over the cliff. They would have sold these pigs. That was the way they made their living. And now that is gone. And so we see that the people don't rejoice. All they know is that this man who's out here doing mystical, mysterious, seemingly miraculous stuff, he's showing up, and now their pigs, which is their livelihood, are at the bottom of the lake. So note this. For them, the experience of Christ, their exposure to him, and their knowledge of who he is, is not started off on a note that extends any earthly comforts. I want us to think about that. They should have been happy to have the rest, the resource of pigs be used in the deliverance of a human, but they weren't. They should have rejoiced when witnessing God's power in this way, right? But they didn't. By the standards of earthly riches, Christ showing up has cost them something, and so that coupled with their fear of what they've witnessed has made them reject him instead of rejoicing and resting in him. And this actually provides us with a picture of human nature. See, we can care so much about our stuff, Right? that it sometimes distorts our view of what really matters and we can fail to appreciate what is gained with Christ because we focus on what him entering our lives might cost us. And so let's guard against this, friends. Let's guard against this and be intentional about reminding ourselves that we gain so much more than we lose with Christ in our lives. It seems to be what the difference is between the man who was delivered and the people in the, in the town. He sees how much he's gained. And so we can imagine there's a sense of rejoicing. He knows he's been delivered. And so he sits at Jesus's feet and he rests. And we see in verse 38 that he actually wants to go with Jesus. Like he wants to, to go with this one who's brought him deliverance. And that brings us to my next suggestion. Not only should we rejoice and rest when we witness God's power, but we should also willfully wonder when witnessing God's power. We should willfully wonder. The man was delivered 
And in verse 38, he begged Jesus to go with him. He wanted to be with the one who just demonstrated his power in his life. He wanted to, to follow and, and tether himself to and witness more of this wonderful power that had been on display. And again, just thinking about the people, the people from the town didn't. There's a difference in their response. They told Jesus to leave their town. We see that their fear is actually mentioned twice, once in verse 35 and then again in verse 37. And we're told back in verse 25 that the disciples were also fearful after witnessing Jesus' power. But do you see the difference between their fear and the fear of the people from the town? The disciples' fear was coupled with amazement. It says their fear made them want to, to gaze all the more with wonder and power of their amazing Lord after he silenced this storm. And we should seek to be like the disciples and the delivered man when we witness God's powers, friends. This reverential fear alongside this, this great amazement and what I call a willful wandering. And so what does it look like to, to willfully wonder at God's power? Like, how does this come to bear on our day-to-day lives? For starters, I think we can just wake up and recognize that each day and the fine details that happen within it are all ordained by God. So we wake up. And we begin our days by, by putting on lenses that make us view the world through the perspective of, like, wow, God did that. Like, if, if you make the choice to do this, friends, you'd probably be surprised by how much of God's power you see and are amazed by. His power is all around us. We just have to willfully wonder at it. Another thing we can do is to purposely go places that will give us new or fresh exposure to the power of God. We live in a day and age where uh, the temptation for us is to just live our lives from a couch and from behind a screen, whether it be a phone or a computer. But we live in this, this day and age where we're tempted in that way instead of actually going to physically be places that expose us to the Lord's work in this world. And so let's, let's willfully wonder by getting off the couch, putting our phones down and going for a hike or going to a museum and, and learning about new things that, that, that God has worked in history. Or just getting up early to watch the sunrise, gazing out at a storm and thinking about how God controls the winds and the waters, going to a zoo and, and considering God's creativity and making the animals he's made. Like this stuff may sound super spiritual and probably even a little weird, but we're Christians. We're supposed to be a little weird, right? <laughs> we can willfully wonder in these ways. These are practices that would help us to willfully wonder at the power of our God. Last suggestion. Decidedly declare. Decidedly declare. After the man begs Jesus to go with him, Jesus denies his request. And in the last verse of our passage, Jesus tells the man to go back to his home and tell all that God had done for him. And it says that often man went proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. This is different than what we've typically seen after Jesus performs miracles and he's in a situation like this. He usually tells people to not tell of the miracles he's performed. Well, his reason for changing it up here is because he knows that unlike across the lake among the Jewish people, he's now in a region where people haven't heard of him and they aren't expecting any coming Messiah. And so they need the exposure to him that this miracle would bring. See, back in Jewish territory, they were trying to turn Jesus' ministry into a political campaign. But over here with the Gerasene people, they don't have any political investment into a coming Messiah. So for them, this doesn't become a political campaign, but it becomes a testimony. Jesus wants this man to tell of this miracle because in telling of the miracle, he'd also be telling of the Messiah who performed the miracle. And that's what they need. 
They need the one who has witnessed the power of God to decidedly declare about the power of God. I mean, this whole town, that's what the passage says, is now hearing of Jesus because of his deliverance of this man. And here's what I want to say to us today. There's a whole town because of our deliverance that should be hearing of Jesus and the deliverance he's worked in our lives. We've witnessed God's power of salvation through the gospel. We've witnessed God's power in many other things that we see in our lives on a day to day basis. And we should therefore be decidedly declaring about our great God and his great power. We know that he's powerful enough to command creation. We know that he's powerful enough to evict evil. We know that his power surpasses human strategy and it soothes the saved. His power is on display all around us. And there's endless opportunity for us to both marvel at it and to talk about it. And so let's commit to being a people who witness God's power and then rejoice and rest in it, willfully wonder at it and decidedly declare about it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the power that you so graciously display. We're grateful for the power that you allow us to see in all of your workings in the world. And Father, we're particularly grateful for the power that you've allowed us to see in your redemption of sinners. We sit here this morning knowing that we're living in, hoping in, a power that we could never find in ourselves. We're living and hoping in a power that has raised our savior from the dead and provided us with the hope of heaven and our own resurrection. And so we say, thank you for showing us this. Thank you for allowing us to have veils removed from our eyes and to see this through the Holy Spirit's empowerment. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that you show in displaying your power and in lifting our eyes to gaze at it. We pray that as we gaze, we'd be faithful to go and invite others to gaze alongside us. You're the all-powerful God of the universe. And there's no person in the universe who shouldn't have a chance to hear that truth. So I pray that you would help us, Father, to be faithful to you, be faithful to the gospel, to be faithful to our response to the gospel by going in and declaring of it, to those that have yet to hear it. Make us a people that are willing to go to the opposite other sides of places so that your gospel will continue to advance. For your glory and our good, we pray. Amen.